0: Hey, I'm Bruce Weinstein. This is the podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark.
1: And I'm Mark Scarborough. And together with Bruce, we have published 35 cookbooks. Unbelievable, including the latest, The Instant Air Fryer Bible. But if you want more instant things, look at our books, The Instant Pot Bible and Instant Pot Bible: The Next Generation books to make the game in your Instant Pot all the better. And may I say, great holiday gifts oh, yeah. at this time of year. But we're not talking about Instant Pots in this episode of the podcast. Cooking with Bruce and Mark. We're going to talk about breakfast around the world. We've got a one-minute cooking tip. We have an interview with a long-time friend and cookbook legend Rose Levy Berenbaum. And we're going to talk about what's making us happy in food this week. So let's get. Started started. started.
0: I thought it would be really fun to talk about what we like for breakfast. Okay. And then to talk about what people around the world like for breakfast. Oh, and, and what we
1: like for breakfast. I have okay. very specific breakfast yeah, needs. I mean, Mark
0: and I are not your typical Americans into the pancakes and waffles nope. and bacon and eggs. Neither nope. of us drink orange juice. No. Nope. We don't even drink drip coffee. We make our lattes every morning. We do. We like our, we're really pretentious and we drink our lattes. I have
1: to tell you that the when I went to Paris in oh, May. And this has to be about 84. I went to Paris, and I'm out of college. And I am, you know, basically a baby adult. And I go back (laughs) to Paris. And, uh, you know, I have my cafe au lait every single morning, of course, in the hotel I'm staying in. uh, Listen, it's a charmless hotel at the time, way out in the 15th, which was Nowheresville back then. And um, I, I am having my cafe au lait every morning. And it's so delicious. I was like... I'm going to have this every morning for the rest of my life. And so and I have. Do. <laughs> I always have an espresso machine. I always have a frother. I make a bowl. Mm, bowl. Mm, bowl. I have a bowl every single morning of my life. In
0: fact, during COVID, we decided since we weren't traveling at all and we were not spending money on traveling, we splurged on a really nice ECM espresso machine, which is yeah. a German machine designed by Italians. And... We have decided that the coffee we love more than anything else is Monsooned Malabar. Uh, We've talked about that before in the podcast. Brilliant. It is a very low acid, deeply richly flavored coffee. And that is how we start our day with those. And sometimes we will have toast with my homemade jams. Mark likes a little piece of cheese. But that's I what we like for I breakfast. Like,
1: I like a little piece of cheese with a piece of fruit. Now, that is my favorite breakfast. I like... Uh, and it usually not soft cheeses like brie or camembert. I like harder cheeses mm. in the morning. like um, pecorino. Like pecorino or manchego or the midnight moon. I like harder cheeses in the morning and then just a little bit of fruit with it. That's my breakfast. So, and listen, I, I don't have to have that breakfast every single morning, but it is what I traditionally eat for
0: breakfast. Now around the world, different breakfasts for different tastes, different cultures. You know, Australia claims to have invented avocado toast oh, as a not. breakfast
1: food. Oh they did not. They claimed if, oh, that would, it it is on. a national pride for
0: them that Australia is home of avocado toast for breakfast. And sometimes it has a poached egg on it. Sometimes it's a fried egg on it. No. Yeah. They claim to have invented no. avocado toast.
1: No, some millennial in New York City invented <laughs> avocado toast. And <laughs> no, I'm I'm sorry, I'm not I am not being disabused of my mythology. So. I love avocado
0: toast. If I you do. don't know what it is, you just take a piece of toast and you slice up an avocado, you smear it on top, and then in my world, you s- do a squizzle of sriracha on top of that, a little salt. Yep. That's a good avocado toast. Yep. It, Australians claim to have invented it. I love avocado toast. Th- and I can't imagine why
1: people are so snotty about it. I, I think it's so delicious. But I
0: like it for lunch. I don't want it for breakfast.
1: No. Of course, in France, for many traditional people, the croissant rules now... Things have really changed, and there are all kinds of different breakfasts now in France. Back in the day, mm-hmm. and I'm speaking of like the '80s when I was a baby adult traveling around, every hotel in Paris basically you got café au lait and a croissant. I'm sorry, café au lait and a croissant. A croissant. Right,
0: a croissant. A croissant, make a croissant sandwich out of it. Right. So,
1: oh, <laughs> God, Bruce knows how much I hate croissant sandwiches i hate them like what sandwich a bread
0: croissant is not a sandwich oh, bread but then again oh, it's in the, gummy but in the us the Croissants they use for sandwiches are not real croissants; they're junky. It's, oh, like,
1: it's so gummy, and there's no shardability. If
0: you've listened to this podcast before, you know the previous episode we talked about the baguette and how it's been honored by UNESCO. The the croissant needs the same; it needs the same validation well, as probably the baguette. has it. So in Peru, oh my God, in Peru, one of the specialties is called pain con chicharone. I don't think it's
1: pain. But it pan. sounded very French. Suddenly, <laughs> pan con, con chicharrón. Ro-
0: so it's a roll with fried pork belly and sweet potato, and it's a popular street food. Oh, and quite honestly. Good. Fried pork belly and fried smoked pork on bread is not that uncommon around the world. We just no. came back from a trip to Toronto, yeah. And pea meal bacon in a roll is one of the most common breakfasts you can get at the big markets there.
1: Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I know. Of course not. And bacon itself—I mean, everybody knows pork at breakfast. I think pork mm-hmm. belly is a little out there. It's well, a little. let just heavy. bacon,
0: but it's not smoked.
1: Well, when I was uh, traveling around again as a baby adult, I went to Japan a couple times, and I I'm have trying this to imagine. You
0: like a baby adult, like 23 <laughs> with a diaper.
1: That, that's uh, now, and now I'm 63 with a diaper, so it all works out. Um, I, I of course was a uh, uh, total rube from Texas and knew nothing, and was so shocked when I would get my fish and miso and uh, you know a <laughs> breakfast with rice in it, and I thought, what? Wait, isn't this dinner? I mean, this isn't breakfast. No, is it's it? not
0: dinner because it's a smaller portion. But right. in Japan, the classic Classic breakfast is going to be miso soup, rice and fish. Basically, that's what you eat three meals a day in different size portions, small for breakfast, medium for lunch, and large for dinner. Yeah,
1: and I don't know if this is the truth or not, but where I was down in the south of Japan, down toward the very bottom, the one of the places that I stayed, the woman who was running it, told me that essentially you were supposed to eat the miso soup first in the morning, but in the evening you eat miso soup at the end. Your meal. I don't know if that's true. Or
0: well, not. I've read that too, so I think that probably is something they do now. Uh, if you go, they, they, they do. They, they. What is all this? Of them they, okay,
1: are. the entire country. So now they. let's talk
0: about the entire country of Israel. Oh You go God. to Israel, and it is one of those places where you will mm-hmm. find their famed chopped cucumber and tomato salad at. Every single stinking meal, <laughs> including true. breakfast. Now, I love that Israeli chopped I salad. Do too. But I don't want to wake up to it. Uh, I don't know. And, but you get it. You can get the hummus. You can get oh, some pita. That's so, like my favorite meal. So, do you want to get up and have hummus and chopped salad for breakfast? Good Israel. I I I don't know that. I mean, I, I know I'm opening myself up. Please don't at me. Don't email me like crazy and tell me that you can get bacon and eggs in Israel because you well, probably you can't can. get bacon. You know how hard it is to get bacon in Tel Aviv?
1: Okay. okay. I, bet, I bet it's not hard to get tofu bacon. Tofu tofa bacon, however they say it. I bet, I mean, no, pork bacon, sure, in Israel. but It is hard to get. But listen, this is absurd because people in Israel, not every house wakes up and makes the same thing. So there's a little bit of racism here that's making me very uncomfortable because I can tell you in the next instance, it is truly not true. I mean, yes, there is this thing called the full English breakfast mm. that's beans and eggs and bacon and toast. But I have to say that no Brit I know eats
0: the full English breakfast. English breakfast when we go to England I eat it every day oh, and in Scotland now when I when do you have
1: so much diarrhea and oh for god's sake I tr- <laughs> Look, one should not eat that off for black breakfast. Black
0: pudding every morning. Okay, that I like. Black pudding, which is basically blood pudding, mm, mm, haggis, bacon, like. baked beans. That, was, that what a, stuff I like. What a breakfast. That's fabulous. Thank you. Black pudding is a delicious
1: thing. Thank you, Scotland. And I think black pudding on a piece of crunchy toast is just sublime. Mm. But I listen, nobody eats the full English. Oh, I guess somebody does. I, my hunch is tourists eat the full English breakfast. Well, I mean, I mean, that's what I think but what do I know I don't you know I, I don't know I, I know a lot of people would claim that that given the proliferation of waffle houses that <laughs> every American eats waffles for breakfast so what do I know, I don't know. Mexico of course uh, the uh, common breakfast food is the chilequiles
0: mm, the yummy yummy are just delicious. basically I look at chiliquiles as kind of matzo brai of Mexico <laughs> <laughs> you take the leftover tortillas <laughs> and left the of matzo, you, matzo you cut bra. it up and you fry it up on a grill top, mm. just like matzo brai, but instead of topping with maple syrup, you top with red or green salsa, with a crema, some fried eggs, mm. onions, mm. queso. Mm. You know what? We should try that on matzo brae. Salsa, crema, no. fried eggs, no. queso. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, first of all, Monsa yeah, Bray... Sorry, now don't at me. Monsa Bray <laughs> is
0: disgusting. Uh, gross. It is. Gross. <sighs> but it's only good pancake style. Those who eat it scrambled style... They can just stop it.
1: You all can stop everything. As far as I don't want mushy matzah in eggs. That is just not attractive. I. But you know what? Part of that as to and this is this is I think really what's uh, crucial to all of this is breakfast foods tend to be very ritualized, and mm-hmm. you remember certain things from your childhood, like matzah brie, which of course, as a good guy, I didn't have growing up. I didn't have matzah brie until I moved in with Bruce. I didn't even know what it was. And I had it, and I have to say I didn't like it, but um, in all honesty, but see, I just have the childhood essence, echo, what is that, resonance around it. I mean, I grew up and go- I guess it's donuts. You donut. grew up da- buttering donuts. Yeah, we did. We buttered I mean, donuts in my for house. God we buttered say, glazed donuts. Buttered donuts. And this is the part that kills me. My mom, who just turned ninety and is still around, my mom uh, would we'd get glazed donuts and she'd put it on a them on a baking sheet and put them in the oven so they would get kind of weirdly crunchy and all the sugar would melt and adhere to the baking sheet and then she would shard them up <laughs> with a spatula. What? What are you doing? To <laughs> (laughs) Glazed donuts. And then we would butter them because they'd been dried out. My mother shoved everything in the oven. It was so bizarre. Donuts shoved on a baking sheet, fresh donuts in the oven. It's so bizarre. But all of that said, I think that breakfast is super ritualized. And I think it's one of those meals that people have that they, you know, you have what you like, and it's very hard to break out of it because it's something that you do, whether it's your granola or strawberries or I'm, if you get up and make bacon and eggs
0: every morning. Or if you live in the Netherlands, you get up and you have bread with hagelslag, And that is That's basically... That's
1: so mispronounced.
0: Oh, well, I'm not, I'm not from the Netherlands. I'm not Dutch. I don't know how to pronounce it. So oh. first, your bread is buttered. Then it's covered in tiny chocolate sprinkles. So it's sort of like their version of a donut. But it's not.
1: Okay, I'm going to go back to my point. I'm sorry, I don't mean to keep coming back to it, but about breakfast being ritualized. If I had to think of a breakfast that from my childhood that is super, super, I don't know what, comforting part of my childhood, and I don't ever have it anymore, and that cinnamon toast. When mom would make mm, cinnamon toast I in the morning that. when she wasn't baking glazed donuts until they <laughs> were shardy. When she would make cinnamon toast in the morning, that was like the best breakfast. And yes... I did grow up in a house with a mom who made a hot breakfast every morning. Even if it was sharded donuts out of the <laughs> oven, it was still a hot breakfast every single morning. I, I
0: liked my Quisp cereal when I was a
1: oh, kid. Oh, I wouldn't have been allowed to eat that. Mm. We didn't eat sugary cereals. Mm. Except, it's really funny, we claimed we didn't eat sugary cereals, but my dad ate Frosted Flakes every Sunday so morning. So who is the we? I don't know, <laughs> because we said we didn't eat sugary cereals, but dad ate Frosted Flakes Every Sunday morning, oh, that's the whole thing in my house. Sunday mornings, because we were getting ready for church, was cold breakfast. Every wow, hence other morning. The yeah, every other morning was hot breakfast. My mom actually got up, even when I went to band practice. It's kind of amazing. My mom took being a housewife very seriously, and she would get up, and I'd have to be at band to practice at seven in the morning. So she would get up at six and like make biscuits or make cinnamon toast or make scrambled eggs. I mean, she would make a hot breakfast every single You were morning. very
0: lucky. It was crazy. You well, were very well, my lucky. mom didn't
1: work. I mean, she considered this her job. Yeah. This was her job is being a mom and a stay-at-home mom. And so it was a big thing. She, it was part of, like, her identity that she made a hot breakfast for my dad and me. Uh, maybe it's just because they were, for a long time, just the two of us. Mm. So it was easier than if you have, you know, a gaggle of children running down the stairs. Yeah. I don't know. The Brady Bunch, they always had a hot <laughs> breakfast.
2: They had a, a, made, hot breakfast. <laughs> a living. Alice.
1: Yeah. Well. Okay. So, enough about breakfast. Let's move on to our one-minute cooking
0: tip. I bet you didn't know that your pepper grinder most likely has a way to control the coarseness of the grind of your pepper. It's true. And every one of them, if you loosen the screw on the very top, or if you open it up, there's probably a screw inside that you could tighten or loosen to make your pepper coarser or finer. And I, I have
1: to tell you, I love coarse pepper. So I love coarsely ground, not finely ground pepper, which is why I like it out of a pepper mill, because I can get coarser pepper. You
0: can get just uh, what you want.
1: I—I And I'm one of those annoying people who, when they pepper my salad, you know, in the old days, <laughs> and they bring over the giant... Oh, the
0: four-foot pepper grinder. The giant novelty <laughs> pepper grinder.
1: I'm one of the guys that are like, uh, you're going to be here for a while, because I like pe- black pepper. So you're going to stand here for a while. Not... not going to do the one or two turns you're going to do you're going to get a cramp in your arm yeah i i really love by pepper so uh, check your pepper grinder if you have one and note that the top screw or like we have one with a bottom bit Mm -hmm. right yeah that is adjustable either way you can adjust the grind on it up next Bruce's interview with our longtime friend and the legendary cookbook author, Rose Levy-Barenbaum, her cake bible, the cake bible, is still on our shelves, and he's still a well-used book. Rose has a new book out, The Cookie Bible. So take it away,
0: Bruce. This morning, I am so excited because I'm speaking with Rose Levy Berenbaum. She is the award-winning author of 13 cookbooks, including the classic The Cake Bible. Her website, realbakingwithrose.com, has created an international community of bakers who turn to Rose for all things baking. And she has just published her latest book, The Cookie Bible. Rose, thanks for joining me.
2: Oh, it's a pleasure after all these years that we can get together.
0: (laughs) So I just love that you start your new cookie Bible by talking about kids. Tell me a bit about how you see baking cookies with kids.
2: I have to tell you a little history. I don't know if you know Elizabeth Carmel, who wrote Taming the Flame and Girls at the Grill, but She introduced me to her young nephew and asked if I would come and give him a a cookie lesson for Christmas. And he was about four years old, and he was really good. And then the next son was born, and he joined the group, and the third son. So I was ending up giving three kids cookie lessons. And I learned something myself very interesting, because the oldest boy, when he was about eight, I said don't use a timer for this. We were using the mixer, just count to 20 seconds. And he said, but if I count faster, will it work? And I thought, okay, I've often thought that myself, rather wished it myself. But I realized that for kids to, when they're learning baking, they're learning just about everything valuable in life. They're learning patience, art, science, math, a really wonderful way to teach kids and also to connect with them. Because sometimes you think, well, what what would kids be interested in that I have to say to them, they they have their own world. So it was really interesting, you know, over the years to, to watch this evolve. And now the oldest one is graduating from college. So that was the, the kind of came to an end. But we did this for years.
0: You were very lucky to do that. And they were lucky to have you as a teacher. Can you remember your first time baking
2: cookies? Sort of. I mean, My grandmother only one time ever made a pie and she gave me some pie dough just to make a little gingerbread man. It wasn't gingerbread, but they call them gingerbread men when they're that shape. So I suppose that was my first cookie, but my actual first cookie was when I went to college and I came home and I decided time for me to learn to bake. So I got the Quaker oatmeal box and I thought this should work if the recipe's right on the box. It worked to make one cookie, one giant cookie, because it all bled together, <laughs> you know, flooded on the pan. Something must have been wrong with that recipe, because I'm, right. always, I was very fastidious about following directions, at least the first time. So that discouraged me. And then when I went back to cookie baking, it was about three or four years later, I was working at Educational Testing Service in Princeton. And someone brought in the cookie, which is actually called hakya in Dutch, which means little cake. And it was buttery, it was tender, and it was delicious. And she gave me the recipe and it worked. Uh, And that's in the new book, The Cookie Bible. You look at it, you think it's a very gentle little cookie, but when you taste it, it's totally satisfying. And you just want one after the other.
0: This isn't your first cookie book. Rose's Christmas Cookies came out over 30 years ago. And back then, you said you'd rather have one perfect cookie made with butter than a whole bunch made with shortening. Now, after 30 years and hundreds of cookie recipes later, do you still believe that?
2: Oh, absolutely. More than ever. In fact, I didn't have to be taught what to say when the dairy council hired me to be their spokesperson for butter, because they said, what you're saying is exactly how we feel. And margarine was the new enemy. The thing is about margarine and especially Crisco shortening is that there's no flavor. And butter not only has a wonderful flavor of its own, but it also brings forth the flavor of other ingredients. So yes, I feel the same way. But I have to admit, somebody gave me a wonderful recipe for molasses, ginger crisps. They're in the book. And Basically, the molasses cookies, but they have this incredible chew. And she said, The secret is the Crisco. And I thought, Oh, no, we don't. You know, I'm going to use butter instead of Crisco and see what happens. But the difference between Gris- Crisco and butter is that butter has water in it. So I clarified the butter and made it more like Crisco as far as consistency, and it came out the same texture, but with marvelous flavor.
0: Before we get to the recipes in your book, you offer up some golden rules for baking the best cookies, including the importance of weighing and measuring. And I do have to give you credit. You were one of the first cookbook authors to insist on weights for flour and sugar in your recipes. Can you tell me why you did that?
2: Because it's faster, easier, and more accurate. And in the time, my first major book was The Cake Bible. And, well, they didn't want me to have grams only. They said you can put grams in, but first you have to put the volume, it's more friendly, and then the ounces and then the grams. And with each subsequent book, things improved to the point where now I put the weight first and no ounces at all. Because as you know, ounces are fluid ounces and weight ounces. So it's very confusing to people. I think it's much more streamlined. I don't know of any other cookbook that put weights in until the cake Bible came out. And I remember Peter Reiner called me one day and he said, I don't want to do this without your permission, but could I use weight charts the way you did? And I thought, (laughs) wow, so many people are ripping off other people and imitating. And here's somebody who's polite enough to even ask. I want people to do it because that practically ensures their success. You know, though, of course, there are other tips like your oven temperature. But thing is with weight, if you don't weigh and you don't say how you're measuring, you could end up with instead of one cup of flour, one and three quarter cups of flour. So that's why weight is is such a joy and scales these days are much less expensive and accurate.
0: And I want to talk about flour for a second before we get onto other questions. Is there really a difference between bleached and unbleached all-purpose flour when you're making cookies?
2: Yes. And I often wonder why people don't specify in recipes, they just say all-purpose flour because unbleached flour is a slightly higher protein content, which means that it won't be as tender and also it will brown faster. But a third thing is that in a cookie, which we're talking about, is that if you're using unbleached flour, it absorbs any liquid and even if you're not adding water or milk there's liquid in the egg this liquid in brown sugar it will absorb it and then it will tie it up so to speak so that you don't get the puff Mm. and it also doesn't spread as much so sometimes there is a time for unbleached flour because there are times when your type of cookie is spreading too much also it may not be browning enough because it's baking such a short time so when you use unbleached that solves those problems Perfectly. Let
0: me ask you, Rose, what's your take on the old adage that you should just underbake cookies if you like them softer? Do you think that works or should you just start with a recipe that's designed to create a soft cookie?
2: That's a very good question. I think you should start. I mean, not all cookies should be soft, but those that should be would be your best choice. And then underbaking, well, I think most people overbake because a cookie is so small that it continues to get hard and bake when you take it out of the oven. And especially if it's a fragile cookie and it has to sit on the cookie sheet for a minute or two in order to be able to lift it off. By then, it's gone up maybe five degrees. So for those types of cookies, I like to press them in the center. And if they still feel soft, that's when I take them out. The edges should be firm.
0: And what's your take on freezing cookies? Yay or nay?
2: But the types of cookies we're talking about have a long shelf life. So I don't really see a case for freezing them, except when we came back from book tour and Annie Baker her cookie lemon lumpies is in the book. And she gave us like 30 cookies. So there was no way we were going to get through those with its shelf life. So we do have them in the freezer and they're fine. And one thing you can do is to put them in the oven at 300 a few minutes and kind of revive them
0: are you not a fan of eating frozen cookies sometimes i can't resist
2: well there's one cookie in the book actually that is better frozen and that's because it has such a high sugar content it doesn't get super hard so it's not going to break your teeth Mm -hmm. and it's even better when it's that cold because something that inherently by nature is sweet like um, toffee or the pecan cookies, that you actually want to temper the sweetness by eating it frozen. Hmm. And Rose, are
0: there any other baking gems you want to offer for cookie bakers to get it right every time?
2: Well, I think it's really nice to be able to bake one cookie sheet at a time in the oven because then it can be more even and controlled. A lot of times I've seen cookies that are too brown at the bottom Hmm. and you can lift it up to a higher shelf or you can double pan it put one pan on top of the other. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are also the pans that are insulated, but you don't want to use them for things where you want crisp. So there's a lot of ways you can control that. I think tips are more important than recipes. There's so many recipes out there, (laughs) but if if you can write them right, it's the tips that really matter.
0: And this new book, The Cookie Bible, is just packed with tips and your wisdom and knowledge about cookies. And it is just so much fun to read as well as bake from. And I want to go and talk about some particular recipes you have in the rolled cookie chapter recipe for tahini crisps. Now, I love tahini, but I need to ask you, what is it about sesame paste that you like? What does it add to this cookie?
2: Well, here is a really important tip. And I discovered this when we were teaching at the Cambridge Culinary in Boston, and they made over a hundred. And we got there a day early because of the Nor'easter that was anticipated. So we worked with everybody, which we had not done before. And we saw what was happening. They brought some tahini crisp dough for the cookies that they thought they would make as an extra. And it was so oily. And I said, didn't you stir the tahini? And they said, well, yes. And I said, let's empty it out completely out of the jar. And lo and behold, you can stir till the cows come home. But the sesame tahini sticks to the bottom of the jar. You have to get it all out or it won't work. And this is one of my favorite cookies because I love the flavor of sesame. And also I like the texture. You know how peanut butter and sesame to some extent has that quality of sort of coating your palate and be kind of sandy and gravelly. Well, when you bite into these, they're crisp, but they're also a quality that's really desirable that is unlike any other cookie, because that's what sesame does. And of course, I like the black tahini. It's no different flavor, but it's so beautiful. Like when I'm sprinkling them with the sesame seeds, I called it tuxedo cookies because that's what it made me think of. But then Sum came out with a chocolate tahini. What is wonderful about it is if you're in a rush you don't have to let it sit because the chocolate gives it firmness Mm. and normally after mixing it even if you're using a food processor which doesn't heat up as much it works better to let it sit in the refrigerator for a half hour before you roll it
0: in your dropped and rolled cookie chapter you include one of my favorite but difficult to make cookies the florentine i'm gonna ask you to describe a florentine and offer some tricks to home bakers to help them get it right
2: Well, I was afraid that I couldn't achieve the perfect Florentine, and that was when it required a lot of tests. But now that I got to my point of my favorite one, which is one that's crunchy, flavorful, and has the little holes in it, and that was the big challenge. I like parchment because it absorbs some of the liquid and makes it crisp while protecting it. But in this case, when I tried it on Silpat, and I always try things two ways at least, I found that the coals closed up completely because it was baking faster and with the parchment I had the holes and the Florentine traditionally has chocolate that's brushed onto the back of it so that when you have holes you can see it on the top. Boy my mouth is watering and of course it has the classic orange flavor.
0: Now your recipes in the cookie bible go from the simple to the sublime including Mm -hmm. chocolate pommiers which start as chocolate puff pastry. Now Does the cocoa powder in the recipe change the technique for laminating the dough?
2: I had to give that a lot of hard thought because this is Erin, not Jean McDowell's recipe. And she has been doing the styling for all of our past four books. And that's when I first met those cookies and totally fell in love with them. And Mm. so I asked her how she felt about it. And she said, no, it's the same technique she uses for her regular laminated dough. Her technique, doing a fourfold instead of a threefold before she does a threefold, is new to me. So... I tried that to make these cookies and it worked beautifully. But her main thing was that when it's in the refrigerator and you take it out to roll, it doesn't get any firmer than a plain puff pastry. And I thought that was good to know. I was afraid of that because chocolate does that, but cocoa is not what does it. It's melted chocolate with a high amount of cocoa butter that sets up so quickly.
0: You have a whole chapter in your book on meringues, which once you master the technique, you can make so many cookies, including macarons and you have a recipe for chocolate Swiss shogis. So I have to ask you, what tips do you have for home bakers when they're making meringues?
2: I think this is my most important tip, in my opinion of all, because you know how recipes for years say, beat the whites until stiff, but not dry. Yep. And what happens if they're dry is they're breaking down. So instead of giving the aeration in whatever you're using it, you lose it all and it's all over. Mm -hmm. And it's a very fine line between stiff and then over (laughs) stiff and dry. So one day I set out, this years ago, to see how much cream of tartar I could put in that to prevent it from happening. And cream of tartar is a natural ingredient, it's not chemical, it's part of the winemaking industry. Mm-hmm. So I discovered that for one egg white, which now the egg white has changed in volume for most eggs because the yolk has shrunk. They're using laying hens that are younger in industry. So it's really important to separate the eggs when you use these or when you're doing meringues Weigh or measure the volume because for every 30 grams or two tablespoons, one teaspoon of cream of, uh, eighth of a teaspoon, sorry, of cream of tartar will prevent it from breaking down for 20 to 30 minutes. You could just keep beating it. And to me, that was a miracle. I was so excited. I thought of all the meringues that I've saved around the world, I wanted to take out a blimp and have it fly over the ocean. (laughs) (laughs) One eighth of a teaspoon per egg white. And, you know, even if the egg white's a little more, it will still work. But don't use more. Oh, but here's something really interesting, because a lot of people, it's an issue about using egg white and whether it's safe for the immune impaired and young. Mm -hmm. So if you buy eggs that are pasteurized in the shell, I use double the cream of tartar. Because mm. it's pasteurized, It has compromised it in a way. So there was a way to improve it, but it took a lot of work to figure that out. And it's a very simple thing to think of. So if you're using eggs pasteurized in the shell, then you just, uh, instead of eighth of a teaspoon, use a quarter of a teaspoon per egg white.
0: Rose, I have the hardest question of all. What's your favorite go-to cookie when it's just you and Woody at home wanting something sweet?
2: Am I only allowed one?
0: <laughs> no, you're allowed to do and and then and then do you and Woody believe that the same cookie is the best cookie?
2: Actually, we do. Ah. I mean, I guess that's why after working together for 18 years, we got married. Well, I mean, we have a similar point of view, but I remember a doctor I worked for many years ago, I used to be a medical secretary, and he said, marriage is the double-barreled approach to life. And since I don't use guns, (laughs) I (laughs) thought, what exactly would that mean? And he said, well, instead of just looking through one viewpoint, you have a double-barrel, you see both, Mm. so that it gives you a broader look. And I have to say that there are many ways in which Woody will add things that i hadn't thought of but on these two one is his recipe and it's called a pepper cocker mm-hmm. which means a pepper cookie if you're jewish you might hear it quite differently but you know <laughs> as i am the first time <laughs> it's an alter cocker yeah. but the thing is <laughs> they they have an incredible shelf life and because of the spice and the ginger his daughter found some in her desk drawer after three years and they were still good but whenever we travel we always take them with us and we always have them on hand Okay, but our number one favorite cookie, it's a chocolate cookie, Mm -hmm. is the truffle cookie. A truffle is baked into a chocolate cookie. This idea came from a really good friend, Zach Townsend, who's a chocolatier and also a translator of French cookbooks. And I've once done this technique for the lava cake because those lava cakes always... It was iffy as to whether you took them out of the oven too soon so Mm -hmm. that they just were too thin Mm -hmm. or that the lava inside was not lava anymore. It was hard. So I thought I made a truffle and put it in. And maybe that's what inspired him to do it this way. But I've never seen it done before. Mm -hmm. And also what I like to do is I like to take the truffle out of the freezer a few minutes before using it because if it's too hard, it can poke through the top. Can you imagine biting into it? a chewy, crispy, wonderful chocolate cookie to find something sort of molten and melting in the middle. So yes, whenever we have extra ganache, like we're making somebody's cake and we have always have extra because we want to make sure that there's enough, we say, oh, let's make truffles and they'll be in the freezer ready to make the cookies because that's the slowest part of the process. The cookie dough itself is pretty quick.
0: Rose Levy-Berenbaum, it has been just a joy to know you all these years and wonderful of you to join me this morning to talk about your new book, The Cookie Bible great good luck with it i know it is going to be a smash hit and uh thanks again
2: and same to you good luck with your new book and looking forward to seeing you in the next century i hope (laughs) thank you
0: okay rose
1: i mean seriously (laughs) she's She's a legend i love rose it's amazing and she's changed the way a lot of us cook she's changed the way a lot of us bake she truly is A legendary figure. And if you don't know her books, I can't recommend more checking out Rose's The Cake Bible or The Cookie Bible. And really, honestly, I'm not saying this because we have been acquainted with her for years now. I'm saying this because she really is serious about what she does. She
0: is very serious and very good at it. That's right.
1: Okay. The last segment, what's making us happy in food this week. And I'm going to go first. Okay. What's making me happy in food this week is Pet Nat if you don't know about pet gnats was that what you were going to say oh he's, gonna, what I was he's gonna sitting across from me with this look <laughs> on his face okay well we'll both talk about it I don't care um, it's it's petillant naturel um, sparkled natural it's a <laughs> it's a natural sparkling wine it's kind of a catch all term and they've become very pet nat. just what you think P-E-T-N-I-T they've become very popular now because it's a sparkling wine made with a very ancient uh, fermentation process in which you do do not add yeast, nope. and you do not add sugar the way you do in Champagne. And so it is a very low-sugar wine,
0: actually. They're very dry. Most pet nats are very, very dry. They're very bubbly. Well, it's funny because very bubbly. They, some of them just come with a regular cork in it, so when yeah. you pull the cork out, you hear a little bit of a pop. We actually opened three bottles last night to have with friends and who had, like, Coke, old-fashioned Coke top bottles. Yeah. Where you pop yeah, it off. Yeah, yeah. And those had loud pops and very, very carbonated. And it was so delicious. And the nice thing is, Pet Nats are not as expensive as champagne. No, Yet, no, no, no. As far as I'm concerned, many Pet Nats I've had are better than champagne. Well... They're not I, as ye- I no, like, they're not yeasty. I do like. I like really yeast. yeasty yeah. champagne. I like yeah. toasty champagne. Yeah. These don't have the yeast, so if you're actually not fond of a yeasty champagne, you probably would like a pet nat, and you can get a really good pet nat for about twenty bucks, versus needing to spend at least thirty oh, bucks for a good yeah, champagne. Yeah, even less, right? Fifteen bucks. Yeah, I think I the mean, ones last night were sixteen ninety five each, and they tasted like thirty dollars bottles of wine. They were, they were delicious.
1: Really nice. I love pet nat, and if you don't know about it, it's the kids, <laughs> <laughs> the, the the young. Millennials and the Gen Zers are very much into pet gnats right now. They're very popular. I think that there was kind of a play toward orange wine for a while, and I think that was too hard. Yeah, I'm not if
0: fond you, of orange it, wines all that a, much. It's a, it's a
1: whole thing. We can talk about it another time, orange wine. But, but pet gnats are a fad kind of right now. But they it's are. a justifiable fad because they are truly amazing.
0: Look them up, and when you go to a wine store, ask, or if you shop at Wine Online, in fact— in the past, Mark and I have talked about Empire Wine in Albany as one of our favorite places, and one of the places we did is our holiday gift guide. And you can just go there and search P-E-T, new word, N-A-T, and it'll show you what Pet Nats they have. That's where we got the one that we had enjoyed last night. It was from France. They make them all over the world. So You can get yep. Pet Nats from Italy, Pet Nats from in England, Australia. from Australia, from Germany, yep. from South America. But Pet Nat, no matter where it comes from, you are going to have a wine I think you're going to like.
1: I do too. So that's our podcast, going with Mark. Thank you so much for being along for part of this journey with us. We are thrilled that you tune in and are with us. If you can rate this podcast, that would be fabulous. We really appreciate the ratings because, again, as we say all the time, we are unsponsored. So those ratings help us in ways that sponsors would traditionally help a podcast like this one. We uh, choose to be this way right now because we get to say whatever we want to say whenever we want to say it like about pet dad so uh we would appreciate it if you would rate it and if you subscribe
0: and thanks for being on this journey continue it with us on our facebook page cooking with bruce and mark and on our youtube channels and tiktok channels also called cooking with bruce and mark and come back in a week where there will be a brand new episode of this podcast cooking with bruce and mark